sometimes I like to have fun with my sermon titles. I like to name them something that make people think one thing is coming, and then all of a sudden it's another thing. Any of y'all ever heard the word, I, I imagine probably over, or the phrase over the last six months, you ever heard the phrase social justice? You heard that? Probably over the last six months in the news you've heard it, and it, it, it's kind of a nebulous term. It tends to mean one thing to, to some people and one thing uh, to another. Well, do you know that the, the, the Bible actually talks about social justice, but it means in a little bit different term. It means justice for the whole of society. Uh, justice for the whole of society. Uh, and that almost for us sometimes seems like a pipe dream, doesn't it? That uh, you, can, you can watch television and it seems like uh, there's one set of rules that some folks get to play by and one set of rules that everybody else gets to play by. And it frustrates us because you're like, wait a minute, the point of justice is that everybody gets the same treatment, right? That there's one rule and if you follow it, you're cool. If you break it, then you should get justice. But there are some folks that if they follow the rule, they get punished anyway. And there are some folks that if they break the rule, nothing happens. And it makes you pull your hair out because you're like, how come everybody can't just get the same treatment? Well, glory to God, guess what? A day is coming when everybody does. A day is coming when everybody gets the same treatment. But before we scream, yay, yes, this sounds like a fantastic thing, do you really want justice? Do you really want it? Now we can all agree that it's good, but if we look in the mirror, how many of us would prefer God's mercy to His justice? I would. I would much rather have God's mercy than His justice. Um, I've seen it defined this way, is that grace is getting something good that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting something bad that you do. I would much rather have God's mercy. Well, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, and look what it, and see what it looks like when God's uniform justice is poured out from heaven at the, the, the end of this passage we're looking at, we've been looking at the last few weeks. So, if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. <clears throat> I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, the slave, the free, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its brutal honesty and the promise that one day justice will be done. And Lord, I pray before that day, everyone in this room would find your mercy so that they find that before they are given your justice. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so, if you don't know uh, what's happening here, um, if you're visiting with us today and maybe you haven't uh, come up to speed with us on where we are in the book of Revelation... Uh, a couple of chapters ago in chapter 5, 
Um, God holds out a scroll. God the Father holds out a scroll that is effectively the redemptive title deed to earth. And he said, and he asked the question, who is able to take this scroll? And John, who is writing the book of Revelation down for us as a record of the vision that God gave him, uh, looks around and there's no one in heaven on earth or under the earth that's able to claim rulership of this world. And John weeps because the promises of God can't be fulfilled if someone doesn't redeem this earth, if someone doesn't take it and restore it. And he's told, don't weep because the, 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 the Lamb who was slain, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, He's worthy to take the scroll. And of course, that's Jesus. So Jesus reaches up and takes the scroll from God's hand and He begins unrolling this title deed. And this title deed is sealed with seven seals on it. And every time Jesus breaks a seal, we see play out what was written on the scroll under it. And we've seen the, the famous passage of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We see uh, Antichrist arrive at the breaking of the first seal in Revelation 6, verses 1 uh, and 2. And then we see the results of Him showing up on earth uh, in conflict, scarcity, and death. Um, those are the next three things that happen after Antichrist arrives. And last week we looked at the breaking of the fifth seal, which is uh, Christians who have been unjustly slain during this time period for their faith and trust in God and belief in His Word. They ask God, how long before you avenge us, avenge our deaths on those who live on the earth? And God says, wait just a little bit. I'm going to. I agree with you. That day is coming, but that day is not here yet. But I agree with you, saints, that your death will be avenged. That it was wrong. It should not have happened. They shouldn't have done that to you, but they did, and I will judge them for it. Today, the breaking of the sixth seal is God letting people on the earth know that He agreed with the saints who were killed and they're in heaven. He tells the saints that He's going to judge those who live on the earth by giving them a white robe and saying, the day is coming. He lets those on earth know by what my Bible calls cosmic disturbances. Cosmic disturbances. Um, so I want us to look, as we look at this passage today, and see that in this passage, God's unbridled, unfettered, uninhibited justice treats everybody the same way when it's time for judgment. That God is ultimately and absolutely and perfectly fair. And hopefully what will come from this at the end is a new appreciation for His mercy. And if you don't know Jesus by the end of today, an urgency to have a relationship with Him before you leave. So, first I want us to see that uh, God's justice is fair because everybody will have the same knowledge. So if you look verses 12 through 14, I'm just going to read it and then, then we're going to talk about what we see. I looked when he, that's Jesus, opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Now you've probably heard or seen several of these images throughout Scripture, maybe even in music. You know the song, It Is Well With My Soul? And Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. That's from this. 
that the writer of it is well with my soul was looking at Revelation chapter 6 and saying that this day is coming. The day when the skies will be rolled back as a scroll. Y'all, Revelation's a hard book. Uh, some of it is intended to be taken literally. Some of it's intended to be taken figuratively. And the hard part is figuring out which is which. Because if you try and interpret the figurative literally, you get in trouble. If you try and interpret the figurative whatever I said, the opposite. You get in trouble. Okay? You got to be able to tell which is which. This passage, some of it is a little bit of both. It's not possible to take all these events literally. Well, pastor, I I thought you believed the Bible. I do. But you got to, to understand that there's a lot in the book of Revelation that John is trying to communicate to you that John did not understand himself what he was seeing. He's just trying to tell you, hey, here's what it looked like. And insofar as he is communicating what it looked like, it is completely accurate and reliable. Uh, But why you can't take all of it literally? Well, stars don't fall. In the words of Pumbaa from The Lion King, stars are giant burning balls of gas billions of miles away. That's true. And along with that, our sun, which is giving us this beautiful glowing light outside, is a small star. Think back to your high school science books. How big is the sun compared to the earth? It's pretty big. If the sun, a small star, fell to earth, there wouldn't be much left of us, would there? No. So John's got to mean something else. Maybe he means meteors. Maybe he means meteorites falling to earth, which would be somewhat damaging. Um, Maybe he just means they're meteor showers in, in large amounts and people see them and go, wow, something's going on. I don't know. And frankly, it doesn't matter because it's not the point of the passage. So guess what I'm going to do now? I'm going to move on. (laughs) So you can't take all of this literally, but neither is there any reason to believe all of them are figurative. Y'all, earthquakes occur every day, don't they? All over the place. Not here, not that we can tell, but they're a common occurrence. The sun becoming black has already occurred in Scripture once. It literally went dark during the crucifixion. The moon has appeared red many times throughout history due to natural causes. You've probably seen in your lifetime a moon that was somewhat red. Have you not? That There are many reasons that the moon can be red. As far as redness due to supernatural causes, if you can believe in a black sun from God, why can't you believe in a red moon? It doesn't make sense to believe God can do one and not the other. And if you believe God turned the sun black during the crucifixion, why can't you believe God would turn the sun red? Uh... Again, not the point. Regarding some of these events, I am not ashamed to say that your pastor has no idea of what John meant. What does it mean to say the sky rolled up like a scroll? The the folks in the New American Commentary seem to think if you... You know, John didn't necessarily have the benefit of this that we did, but if you ever look at... Y'all like watching the radar when when there's crazy weather going on? Maybe on the news. You ever seen a hurricane? It looks like something rolling up, doesn't it? Doesn't a tornado look like something rolling up? The New American Commentary seems to think that maybe that means there'll be more hurricanes and tornadoes. And John was just seeing lots of that. It looked like the sky rolling up. I don't know. I'm not sure. What does it mean that the mountains are moved out of their place? Were they just rocked by massive earthquakes? Or have they literally geographically relocated? Not sure. 
Well, Josh, it sounds like you're saying you're not sure about a lot of things. What's even the point of this sermon? The point is that figuring out the specifics of what happened in the heavens and on the earth. When I say heavens, I mean the sky in, 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 in space in, in terms of celestial bodies, sun, moon, stars. And earth. Figuring out those specifics is not John's point. The fact, John's point that he's trying to get is that everything that God is using to communicate is so painfully large and obvious that no one could miss it. Y'all, if the sun doesn't give light, guess how many people on earth are going to know it? Everybody. Say, well, pastor, only half of the people on the earth are seeing the sun at any given time. If they're not seeing the sun, what are they going to see? The moon. Well, if the sun's black on one side of the earth and the moon's red on the other side of the earth, everybody's going to know something's going on, aren't they? Massive worldwide earthquakes. Y'all, meteor showers or whatever, if if that's what it is, that weren't predicted, things falling to earth if, if they do hit. That would send the entire meteorological community and everyone who watches them into an uproar. If you look at your, your insurance policy that you have maybe on your house or, or even in your car, usually they even use the terminology for massive, un, unexpected events. They call them acts of what? Acts of God. Sometimes your policies even say act of God. You know, it's just a turn of phrase that means a massive, unavoidable force of nature that no one could have seen coming. Imagine if that happened all over the earth at the same time. That's what John says happens at the breaking of the sixth seal. And you know, I didn't put this on your handout, but I thought about this as I was, you know, about to lay down and go to bed last night. If you go all the way back to Genesis, back when God creates... Everything. Genesis 1, verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide day from night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. That God put the sun and the moon and the stars up in the heavens, yes, to help us keep time, but also to communicate to us when He's going to do something like this. When something's out of whack, we notice it. Because there's very little that's as stable as what we see in the heavens. And God is using them at the breaking of the sixth seal to communicate to the entire population of earth, you all, every single one of you, from the greatest to the least, need to know that I'm moving. Y'all, information is a valuable commodity. We increasingly live in a world where we have to be concerned about who possesses information and what they do or don't do with it. Right now, our country is divided and people are angry with each other because each side believes the other is withholding information. And if the information would just be allowed to see the light of day, everyone would be better and we could all heal and be friends and get along. All the folks over here believe that about the folks over here. All the folks over here believe that about the folks over here. Now, maybe that's true, maybe that's not. Who knows? I don't know the folk that they want to get along, frankly. I think it's just like fighting, but that's beside the point. 
That's the way people operate, and they've always operated. There's a reason the phrase, knowledge is power, coined by Sir Francis Bacon, exists. It has long been a goal of the powerful that information and knowledge be controlled. That people in power control what the people they want to control know and don't know. Well, God has no interest in His judgment being secret. Its arrival will not be quiet. It will not only be known by a privileged few. Everyone from the greatest to least will know the information at the exact same time and the exact same way with no spin, no parsing, no right, no left, no center, just uniform justice. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 26 and 27, If anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That when Jesus comes, he's not going to come to different groups first or second. When Jesus comes back, he's coming for everybody at once. No special treatments. No special groups. No, you get him first, you get him second. And, and, and by the way, at this point, the return of Jesus is it, it, it's not a positive for these people. You'll see that in a minute. That everyone will have the same information at the same time. When Jesus comes back, it's not going to be a secret. Everybody will know. So first, everyone will have the same information. Second, everyone will have the same defense. I'm going to go ahead and give you a spoiler. Everyone will have the same defense, and that defense is none. None. Verse 15, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, important, does this sound like the words of saved people? If you know Jesus Christ, how many of y'all at some point, probably when life was going bad, You said, come Lord Jesus. Come back Jesus. We're looking forward to seeing you. We want you to be here. That you being here would make everything better. But what these folks in this passage are saying is, hide us. Hide us. Fall on us mountains. Fall on us rocks. Bury us under the largest mounds of earth on this planet so that we don't have to see the face of Him who's sitting on the throne. They don't want to see Jesus. So do you think these people are saved people? No. They don't have a relationship with Christ. They don't want to see Him. This verse actually closely echoes those to whom salvation was made available. This is not on your handout. Uh, Galatians 3.28 says, There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying in Galatians 3.28 is, hey, there are, as far as who salvation is offered to, there are no social distinctions. 
No financial distinctions, no national distinctions, no racial distinctions, no, no gender distinctions. That a man can be saved as easy as a woman can. An American be, can be saved as easy as a Russian can. Uh, a, a, a white man can be saved as easy as a black man can be saved, as an Asian can be saved, as a Native American can be saved, as a South American can be saved. It doesn't matter. Rich, poor, the same salvation is offered to everybody. That's fair, right? There's not a special way for one group to be saved and a different group has to be saved another way. This side doesn't have a lower cost for being saved than this group does. That everyone is offered the same salvation by the same God through the same Christ in the same Spirit, right? It's one Christ for everybody. We all get the same benefit for coming to Jesus. Love, adoption, grace, mercy. But if you reject that, everybody gets the same penalty. And these folks are starting to figure that out. There is, despite the fact that the prophecy of the book of Revelation is nowhere near completed, at this point, a realization amongst the population on earth that there is nothing that can protect them from this God. It has started to set in. Their last hope, their last prayer is not to God, but to the mountains that He created. Even staring down judgment, they do not want to call on God. They would rather call on this, this earth. They still, even at that moment, look for something in this world to save them from the God who created this world, and it's all in vain. Y'all, there is no defense. This is the warning that it, it almost makes me uncomfortable to give you, but this is what Scripture is saying at this point, so this is what I have to. I like giving, I like warm, fuzzy messages. I do. Y'all know me. I'm, I'm, I'm a warm, fuzzy guy. I don't like being confrontational if I don't have to be. Um, I don't style myself hellfire and brimstone, but y'all, I'm a slave to this book. And when Scripture gives a, war a warning that is this stern, I have to give a warning that is this stern. That John's point here is that there is no hole on this earth deep enough for you to crawl into that the justice of God cannot find you. There is nowhere to go. There is nowhere to hide. There is no bank account big enough. There is no diplomatic immunity strong enough. There is no citizenship. There is no anything that you can have that will shield you from the wrath of God when He comes in justice when time is up. There is nowhere to go and hide. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 26, Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Jesus is saying it doesn't matter if you hide under the mountains and the rocks. I spoke the mountains into existence and called them to rise from the ground. Do you think that they would not uncover you at my command? Psalm 139, 7-12. Uh, you don't have all of these on your handout because I ran out of room, but I'll continue reading down through verse 12. 
The psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day and the darkness and light are both alike to you. That if you try and hide in a hole so dark that God can't see you, God will walk into it and He can see just as easy in the dark as if it was noonday. There is nowhere to hide from Him. There is no file, no envelope, no file cabinet so locked down tight that God can't pull every file of your life out and lay it in front of you. That everything is laid bare before the judgment of God. There's nowhere to hide. There's no defense. I can hear a pin drop in here. It's uncomfortable. You know, it kind of should be. They want to hide themselves below the mountains and below the rocks. Psalm 18 says, In the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were uncovered at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Now, I want to point something out about these three passages that we've read and turn this around kind of in a more positive note because I don't ever want to just leave you with hopeless wrath sitting on top of you and you not realize that there's mercy and grace available to you. Every single one of these passages is two sides of a coin. Okay? You were presented the wrathful side. That there's nowhere to hide from a God who comes in justice. But listen, if you come to Jesus Christ in mercy and grace, God being able to get to you wherever you are is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Let's take Matthew 10, 26 and turn it around. Instead of saying, he is, he is, I don't know Him and He is a God who's coming to me for justice, say, I do know Him and He's a God who's coming to me for salvation. Matthew 10, 26, there's nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. If you have ever suffered for being a Christian and people mocked you and said there is no benefit to you following Jesus when you could be getting ahead in the world, one day that, un, that covered benefit of you being in Christ, one day Jesus is going to uncover that and everybody's going to see the value of the relationship you've had with Him the whole time. One day that's going to be shown for everybody. One day faith in Christ is going to be shown to be the most valuable commodity in the universe. Even though it might be mocked right now. Psalm 139, 7-12, knowing that God can get to you wherever you are is great when you want to be with Him, Right? If God's going to have mercy on me and God's going to provide for me and protect me and have mercy on me, then it makes me happy to know that whether, whether I ascend to heaven, He's there. If I make my bed in hell, He's there. If I go to the farthest part of the sea, even there His hand will guide me and protect me that I can never walk in darkness so dark that God cannot make it light. See, that's good for me. And that can be good for you. That's always the way God works. Think back to the ark. Was the ark a boat of safety or was it a boat of judgment? Yes. If you got in the boat, it was safety. But if you mocked the boat and wanted nothing to do with it and laughed at the guy who was building it, then when the door was shut, 
the same waters that lifted the boat to safety destroyed you. Think about the cross. There were a whole bunch of people standing on Calvary that day that mocked the man who carried that cross up the hill. They laughed at it. They said if God delights in this man, then let him call out to him now and deliver him that we might know he is the Son of God. They mocked him. I guarantee you they're singing a different tune about the man who is on the cross now. If you mock the cross and you ignore it and you don't want anything to do with it and you put it off and you say, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll come to Jesus, but I've got other things I want to do first. It's not all that important to me. I'll get there later. The eternal destiny of my soul is something I can deal with tomorrow. Fear the sudden justice of God. But if you know Jesus, if you have a relationship with Him, if you've come to Him and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Save me, Jesus. Then what is there for you to fear? I don't fear God's justice toward me because God's justice that was reserved for me was carried out on Jesus when He was there. I have no judgment left to fear. My sins have been judged already. There's nothing left for me to be punished for because God's already done it. If Jesus came today, I would be overjoyed. That everyone will have the same defense. And on the day of God's justice, that defense is zero. There is no defense. You're either ready or you're not. So, everyone will have the same information. Everyone will have the same defense. And then finally, everyone will have the same standard of judgment. And this is where the rubber meets the road, doesn't it? Doesn't it frustrate you when some people get treated one way by the law and some people get treated another? That's the very basis of justice. If, if people get treated differently for following the same rules and get different penalties for breaking the same rules, that's not a just society, is it? That the very definition of the rule of law is that we all play by the same rules and we all get the same penalties when we break them. There should be no favorites. But in the world, is that usually the way it shakes out? No. Because people play favorites. Because people are fallen, broken people. We play favorites. Well, God doesn't play favorites. And those people who see the cosmic disturbance... In Revelation 6, get that. They figure it out. Because look at verse 17. For the great day of His wrath is come, and who is able to stand? This is not a real question. This is a rhetorical question. And I want to read something to you that I got from, uh, from History.com. It's the website of the History Channel. Uh, <clears throat> this is American history, but it's also technically world history. Um, it's not that long. It's a, it's a little bit lengthy. It's more than a paragraph. But uh, I'll read it to you, and it won't take you long to figure out what it is. Uh, 
The Manhattan Project was the code name for the American-led effort to develop a functional atomic bomb during World War II. The Manhattan Project was started in response to fears that German scientists had been working on a weapon using nuclear technology since the 30s. On December 28th of 1942, Franklin D. Roosevelt, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, authorized the formation of the Manhattan Project to bring together various scientists and military officials working on nuclear research. Much of the work was performed in Los Alamos, New Mexico, under the direction of theoretical physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer. On July 16, 1945, in a remote desert location near Alamogordo, New Mexico, the first atomic bomb was successfully designated, detonated in what was called the Trinity Test. It created an enormous mushroom cloud some 40,000 feet high and ushered in the atomic age. The scientists at Los Alamos had developed two distinct types of atom bombs by 1945, a uranium-based design called Little Boy and a plutonium-based weapon called the Fat Man. While the war in Europe had ended in April, fighting in the Pacific continued between Japanese forces and U.S. troops. In late July, President Harry Truman called for Japan's surrender with the Potsdam Declaration. The Declaration promised prompt and utter destruction if Japan did not surrender. On August 6, 1945, the United States dropped its first atomic bomb from a B-29 bomber plane called the Enola Gay on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. The little boy exploded with about 13 kilotons of force, leveling five square miles of the city and killing 80,000 people instantly. Tens of thousands more would later die from radiation exposure. When the Japanese did not immediately surrender, the United States dropped a second atomic bomb three days later on the city of Nagasaki. The fat man killed an estimated 40,000 people on impact. Nagasaki had not been the primary target for the second bomb. American bombers initially had targeted the city of Kokura, where Japan had one of the largest munitions plants, but smoke from firebombing raids obscured the sky over Kokura. American planes then turned toward their secondary target in Nagasaki. Citing the devastating power of a new and most cruel bomb, that's a quote, Japanese Emperor Hirohito announced his country's surrender on August 15th, ending World War II. Why did they surrender? Because upon the dropping of a bomb, the likes of which the world had never seen, they saw it and asked the same question people asked in verse 17 of Revelation chapter 6. Who can stand against this? That they were faced with a power so brutal and so overwhelming that it did not matter where you hid, how thick of an armor you wore, how thick the metal plates of your tank were, that it would disintegrate you. So when Emperor Hirohito signed the, the, the treaty ending World War II, it was with the question, who could stand against this? What, what could we do? What makes any of us think that we have any hope of standing against the God who with a word can create a universe? Have you ever sat down and dwelt on the immeasurable and total and absolute power of the God of the universe? Now we throw around the term all-powerful all the time, right? 
You've probably heard the words omnipotent, that you've heard all-powerful, you know, praise to the Lord, the Almighty. The... Okay, let's break down that word almighty. All mighty. There is no possible victory against him if he has declared war. It is impossible. It cannot be done. And later in Revelation, you see that, that the largest military force the earth has ever assembled stands united against just Jesus. He speaks, and they're done. Heard a preacher one time saying, when you see Jesus go to war, it ought to scare you. Because nobody who... If anybody ever shows up to fight you wearing a clean-pressed white suit, you ought to be afraid. Because if he shows up wearing a clean-pressed white suit, he ain't planning on getting dirty. Jesus shows up to war in freshly laundered white linen. He's not planning on getting dirty. It's not going to be all that hard. Their question to who can stand in His presence has its answer in Scripture. Psalm 1 verse 5 says, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Okay, so the righteous can stand in front of God. Well, that doesn't help me all that much because I'm not all that righteous, am I? Anybody in here feel confident saying they are righteous? Not partially, not mostly, but completely. Nobody? Okay, cool. cool. We're all on the same page. None of us are righteous. But there's a way to become righteous, is there not? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He, this is God, made Him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Not even human level righteousness, but the righteousness of God Himself, Jesus gives us if we come to Him. So how do you stand in the judgment? You're righteous. How do you become righteous? You come to Christ who takes your sin from you and gives you the righteousness of God. God is able to make you stand. Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. This is Paul's way of saying, guys, the only one who has the authority to condemn you to hell is Jesus. And if that is the same Jesus who died for you to live and you have a relationship with him, what makes you think he would undo the effects of his own work by sending you to hell? He's not going to condemn you to hell if you belong to him. He's not going to destroy you if he died to save you and you have accepted it. So we're about to have a time of invitation. That you're about to have a, a time of opportunity. That Miss Joyce is going to lead us in a couple of verses of an invitation hymn. And I'll tell you just a second what 
what hymn it's going to be when I sit my stuff down. But I, I want to ask you this.